always got utter belief in him. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. The indoor season continues to roll on. Plenty to talk about this week. Mo Farah is back. Elaine Thompson Hirah gets beaten by a pole. Keely Hodgkinson smashes the British indoor record in the 800 meters. Should a thing Mo be worried? Sarah Hall is apparently running every race on the calendar in 2022. The US Indoor Championships are this weekend in Spokane. And apparently someone forgot to tell the Bowerman Track Club. We'll also have an interview with Shane Strike, the American record holder in the 1,000 meters. He'll be running the 800 at USA Indoors this weekend. That's coming up at the end of the episode. But the biggest running story right now is this. Who took a shit by the Sedona Red Rock High School track? That's not how I thought would be opening this week's podcast. Robert Weldon, my co-host, co-founders of Let's Run.com. But that's all that anyone was talking about on the track and field internet yesterday. Twitter, I go on the Let's Run homepage. We had a thread on the Sedona. Pooper was red hot yesterday. I wake up again, seems to have died down, and then super hot again this morning. I mean, first of all, do you guys even know what happened in this alleged incident? I've sort of been able to piece together the story from various sources, but I don't know if I have a full picture. Weldon, Robert, do you, can you guys enlighten us? Sorry, John, for not having the pooper gate siren ready. John, the best I can tell, this might be an international incident. COVID has taught us one thing, John. Blame foreigners for the problems. And I'm seeing some evidence that Canada may be behind this. Country that... They're not free to do everything that we're free to do here. Apparently, they come down here and take freedom a little bit too far. It's a weird situation, right? Because there's, for people that don't know, this Sedona track, it's at Sedona Red Rock High School. It's where basically every pro group will come down when they're training in Flagstaff. Sedona's a bit lower in elevation. So if they want to do a track workout, this is a publicly available track that they can work out at. So pretty much, you know, if you've been on Instagram, you've seen runners working out this track. What it sounds like recently is the bathroom, the school was locked, so there was no bathroom available. Some one runner during a workout had to take a shit, apparently took a large visible one pretty close to the track. This was discovered and sounds like the pros in Sedona have now been kicked off and not allowed to use this track and they're freaking out because... That was basically, sounds like that was their only option, really. So that's sort of secondhand. I have not dug in and tried to report an oral history or anything on this story, but that's what I can gather from the Twitter and from the Let's Run message board. For the record, let me play Jonathan Galt's role of providing the facts. Sedona's at 4,300 feet of altitude. Flagstaff is 7,000 feet. It's easy to get to. It's only like a 45-minute drive. I think the simple solution the simple the solution is simple everybody will be for this build a wall if we build it on the north and keep the white canadians out the woke mob won't have a problem with that my only concern is this is the country that that birthed grant fisher we need him hopefully he doesn't have to go with the rest of the canadians but this is kind of interesting i mean this got me to thinking about 
appropriate pooping on runs. I mean, you drive down from Flagstaff to do your big workout. You're going to be in the car for an hour. You're going to warm up. You're probably going to have to go to the bathroom. So where have they been going all these times? Weldon, do you remember back in the day where you used to go? Would we pull over at a rest stop? Get some gas? Use the toilet? I think we did, actually. So you can drive to Sedona. It's like an hour. You can drive to Camp Verde, which is a little bit farther and a little bit lower. It's like an hour and a half. Or you can drive like two and a half hours all the way to Phoenix to get down to, you know, 800 feet. But I do remember we would need gas. We would pull over that. I'm not going to say the name of the car. I almost did, but they're not sponsors of the show. Well, I think previously, isn't the problem here that the school was usually unlocked so they could go in the school? This time the school was locked and so they could go on the track? I mean, look, I'll have some sympathy for this. When you have to go on a run, you know, you have to, your options start narrowing down quickly because this problem, it only gets worse. You know, you only have to go more and more. And then finally, when you're bursting, you're not going to shit your pants. You're going to go basically wherever you can go. So if you can't go in the school, you need to start running around and looking for other options. That should not be near the track. But you don't, you know, again, you don't want to be shitting on a school property because A, you could get into some sort of like sexual uh, sex offender list, right? If you're exposing yourself on school grounds. So I don't know. I mean, maybe they just, whoever this was, they're used to going in the building and then they panic and they're like, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't want to go in view of the school. I'm just going to go on the track and they, they panic and freaked out. I can sort of sympathize with that, but, you know, it, at least clean up after yourself. Like, how did they get caught? I mean, I've seen reports that this was done on the sidewalk, the walkway next to the track. That is 100% totally inappropriate. I think we need to establish rule. Can we just use pooping rules? This is called poop gate, John. Or I don't know. People are saying there was a second shooter behind the second shooter. Second People shooter. Second shooter behind the grassy knoll. So maybe it is shit gate. But rule number one for runners: you don't shit your pants. I'm sorry. Maybe the the general population says you just do one in your pants. No, you find a place to go. And I think we've all been out there. It's probably more often on like a long run somewhere. Like, what are you gonna do? High school, I got poison ivy. I used it to wipe. It was one of the worst weeks of my life. So you got to be careful there. But go behind a building. If you're trying to conceal it somewhere, I think you're going to get the benefit of the doubt. If you go to a high school at a public place where kids are around and leave one on a sidewalk, you're rightfully going to be condemned. And now other runners can't use this track. First of all, I'm not so sure about not going in your pants. My son's gone in his pants for years. Nothing. It's not a big deal. Maybe we should be, maybe that's a product idea. We could have adult diapers for elite runners and flag stuff. No, seriously. Come on, people. Find a discreet place to do it. And then, I mean, I have a dog. Get a plastic bag. Even if you weren't prepared for it, you've got to drive off and come back and pick it up. That should be rule number one. And then, or, hey, we're potty training my son. This is maybe the best marketing idea. Just get a portable toilet. Take it to the track. Do it right in the little kid's thing. And then close the lid. You're good to go for your workout. And then when it's time to go home, you can expose of it properly. 
Is that going to be... That might be, create some sort of mad crush, though. If you're not the first, like, person to use the that little potty, Robert, like, if, if you're the fourth person on the team who has to use that thing, it's going to be full. You're not going to want to use that, so... And that's why each person has to have their own. When I first saw this story, horror stories started going through my mind. I was like, wow, could this have been me? Did they find an old shit from 20 years ago when I was in flag? But glad it wasn't proven to be me. I would just Camp Verde, not Sedona to work out. It's a dirt track, more discreet places. I, I don't, as Robert said, I don't. The drive was short enough. I'm trying to think. I think we pull over at the gas station before going to the track. And when we drive to Phoenix to work out, there was a rest stop about halfway there. So get your business done. Continue the drive. Keep going on. What I find the craziest part of this whole story is one high school in Arizona has now said that professional athletes cannot work out on it. And like the entire professional running ecosystem in the Western United States is melting down. People are like, oh no, where are we going to work out? This track's gone. It's like, we're a professional sport here. Like the NBA, if they said, oh, there's a high school gym in California people can't use anymore. I'm pretty sure NBA players would be like, fine, we'll figure out something else out. But no, there's this one track and because of where it's located and because of its public availability, now the whole <laughs> track internet is on fire. I just find it kind of ridiculous. Good point, John. This actually might be a great thing for American running. Most Kenyans aren't working out on a tartan track. There's like three tracks that have paved isn't the right word. What do you say? Tartan? What's the word for a track that isn't dirt? All weather, synthetic, something like that. Most Kenyans are running on a dirt track. What do they have in Sedona? A dirt track. People need to go to Sedona. It's lower altitude. Camp Verde, you mean? Oh, excuse me. Whoa. Yeah, Camp Verde. Go to Camp Verde. It's actually lower altitude. They can run faster, except they're running on some dirt track. So actually, you can't. Might hurt the 1,500 meter runners, but they can drive down to Phoenix. And hopefully, something does get worked out. And the pros, maybe, like just put a little thief to use the track. If you're local, the track's free. If not, there's a $5 fee to use tracks that could generate some money. To, uh, I don't. That would be a good solution. Then maybe they could actually even afford a porta potty. Yeah, maybe the pro groups. If you're using the pro, if you're using the track, you band together and you say, "We'll donate a couple porta potties and pay for maintenance." You know, while we're out in Flagstaff, everyone chips in if you're going to use the track. That way, they don't have to go in the school to go to the bathroom. The pro groups get a place to shit. Everyone's happy. And the use of public tracks in the U.S. is interesting, right? Because sort of each school has its different rules, right? The tracks are usually built by the school systems. Who can use them? Who can't? Whereas in England, John, most tracks, right? You have to be a member of... You have to pay to use every track. Is that how it works? Oh, I I didn't ever train in England, but I think there are fewer public tracks. And yeah, I think they're more highly restricted like that. Same as in Kenya, you know, to use those tracks, often you have to pay. Uh, I believe it's at the... Is it the Lorna Kiplagat? track at the high altitude training center there's one in kenya where you have to pay for it um but yeah i mean also joshua chip the guy he broke the world record in 2020 and he was training on i think it was like a 405 meter track there's basically only one lane it's not level and he still managed to train well enough to break the world record so a track is not necessary but obviously you know it's 
it can be helpful. American pros are definitely used to using it. And I've seen some pros in Boulder weighing in on this. They need to get off their high horse, John. We've received an email. This will be the email of the week. This person wishes to remain anonymous. We can leave it up for a vote if this person wins a free pair of on shoes. I'll give the highlights. I prefer to remain anonymous, but I thought you might be interested in developments at the Boulder tracks. They go on to say there's only two tracks that are can be used now. Manhattan Middle and the one at Newant High School. She describes the disgusting porta potty at Newant, but that's the ideal track. But it sounds like this track at Newant, which is just east of Boulder, won't be in use much longer, John. Here we go. However, the PE teachers are getting really annoyed at the big running groups. Their behavior has been appalling. Cursing the kids, pushing them out of lane one. If a PE class is using the track, the elite runners run through them. To be fair, some of the worst offenders are triathletes, and Dathan's group is always very respectful. The track will be closed this summer for renovations, and then a fence will be placed around the track to keep the runners out. Then there will be no other options during the week. What? I mean... This is just common courtesy. Like, if you're using a school track and this track is being used by the students who go to the school, sorry, they have priority. You know, you're just hopping on a track that doesn't belong to you. Show some courtesy. Don't run over kids. Don't sweat. Certainly don't swear at them. Maybe look into using it at a different time of day. It just feel like the etiquette needs to be better. I mean, do we really? There might, do you think there's some hyperbole in this email? Do we really think an elite pro pushed a kid? Well, I mean, maybe it's accident. Maybe you're running fast. You're trying to dodge them. You stick out your hands. I don't look. I don't know the specifics. There's one anonymous email, but well, there was a name attached, but we're not reading the name. It's weird because if I saw a, a school group running around the track, I wouldn't even try to use the track. I wouldn't even ask. I would just drive, try to find another track, or go to a different town or something. Or, but the very least, people you need to ask if, if school's in session. A lot of the pros and flag staff are going in the morning before the like high school team is out there. You need to know the rules and be respectful. This is embarrassing, but John, I'm glad it was the triathletes. The triathletes and the Canadians, man. One and the same. Man, we're turning off listenership. I, I just want to say I love Canadians and triathletes, and I don't think that these bad apples represent the entirety of what you guys have contributed to the sport. So can't can't be turning off potential listeners here. Well then. But anyway, all right. Enough about shitting on tracks or near tracks. Let's talk about actual running. Looking through the results, I feel like the performance that stood out to me from the weekend came in Birmingham. And that's Birmingham. Birmingham, not Birmingham, the site of NCAAs next month. Keely Hodgkinson, 157.20, British record in the indoor 800 meters. It was the fastest time in the world since March 3rd, 2002, when the current world record was set. And it's, I know the exact date because that was the exact date that Keely Hodgkinson was born. Just so happens to be the indoor world record in the event in which she's now the Olympic silver medalist. So I thought that was pretty cool. This was a negative split. 59.02, I think is what I saw for the splits. So... Super impressive. It suggests that there's more to come. I mean, this is a woman who's run 155 outdoors. And inevitably, I got some people, you know, I got an email from a British reader this week, and he was saying, like, 
you know, I know a thing Mo is the favorite, but this was a really good run by Keely Hodgkinson. They're still both 19. Is there time for this rivalry to turn? And we talked about this on our call this week as well on the Let's Run conference call, which is not recorded and distributed to the public. But what I thought our basic takeaway was I think Mo is still, I view her as the biggest, bigger talent. I don't think Keely Hodgkinson can run 49 mid for the 400, but there's still young enough in their career where this rivalry can certainly turn. And this was faster than the thing Mo's ever run indoors. It was, you know, fastest time indoors in 20 years. I was very impressed by this performance. This run was phenomenal, John. I'm not sure the Wets Run audience is into the 800 as the other events, but if this was an American, people would have been going nuts. She was the Olympic silver medalist. She's still 19. And to negative split this, run that fast, it's crazy. Of course, the thing Mo, I still think, is the better talent. But even last year, people were like, you guys aren't bullish enough on Keely Hutchinson. But I'm like, I think she's going to be really good. I just think a thing Mo is better. But could a thing Mo get beat this year? I think so. I'm not ruling it out, obviously. Yeah, and the crazy thing about this is, she had a quad injury a few weeks ago. This was her first meet of the season. I don't think expectations were super high. I mean, maybe, it, it, actually, I think she they might have been targeting the British record of Gemma Riki, but from outside, I was like, okay, she has a quad injury. It's her first race of the season. I'm not like expecting anything nuts. 157-2, negative split. That, that's, that's really, really good. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was very impressed by this run. And looking at the all-time 800 indoor list, a lot of fast times, John. Late 80s, late 90s, early 2000s. Steffi Graf, John, the tennis player, number two all-time 800. Actually, it's probably not the tennis player, but an Austrian, Stephanie Graf, 155.85. Two, two, two marks ever under 156. But as you said, those are in the same race. Nothing in 20 years. I'm very interested in figuring out what happens with this rivalry. Are we going to have Paul Turgot versus Halle Gabriel-Selesi? I mean, I was thinking about this before that. Before I came up with that analogy, I was like, do we ever have like two superstars? Like, imagine a Bikile and Gabriel-Selesi at the same time. Does that ever happen? Like, who would have gotten that up for hand, but they've won all the time. And I'm like, wait, we kind of had that with Turgot and Gabriel-Selesi. Turgot doesn't get the mass acclaim because he was more of a cross-country guy. Gebrselesi was a little bit better on the track, but or is it going to be more like Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer? Like Federer comes on the scene, you're like, no one can be that good. And then you've got two other guys just as good. But speaking of Miss Mo, where is she? I had a bit of brief of little technical difficulties, but I was about to say, I am so pumped for this podcast because... Have we announced it? We should probably play the breaking news thing. My wife yesterday said, Honey, why don't you go to the NCAA Indoor Championships? Why don't you go to the World Indoor Championships? Serbia? Is that where it is, John? Here we come. I'm going to Worlds. I sure the hell hope everybody else is. But apparently Bowerman's only entered one person at USA's. John, please tell me that I think Mo is entered in the USA Championships. I have bad news for you, Robert. She is not entered in the U.S. championships. And 
Wait, does Robert not know that the press credentials for Worlds were due like a couple of weeks ago and he didn't submit one? When you're as influential as I am in this sport, the rules don't apply. I like to wait for the press deadline to pass, email them a few days later and say, hey, can I get a favor? It's actually ridiculous, crazy. Like, Robert, he kind of, he's acting like the rules don't apply to him, but I'm convinced at this point they actually don't. Like, last year... When he applied for his Olympic credential, he got approved. Like he got approved and everything. And then a few months out, a few weeks out, I'm like, Robert, your passport's expired. This isn't the right one. He's like, No, I have a passport. I'm like, Oh, okay, all right. Can you find it? Robert can't find his passport. He has to get it replaced at the eleventh hour. Somehow he made it to Tokyo. This always seems to happen with Robert. I remember the first World Championships I covered in Beijing. We all needed visas. I had to overnight my passport to robert to get the visa but he went to the nbc in dc got it taken care of like he always makes it to these meets well actually always except once 2018 ncaa cross country i think robert had the crazy idea to fly out on the morning of the race he had to leave baltimore at like 5 a.m there was a snowstorm and he made the plane but they didn't let him on didn't check in early enough but it usually works out for robert johnson john i can do a whole podcast on that Chinese visa situation. And that was no ineptitude on my part. That was the damn Chinese. I hate you, China. <laughs> what? You can't say that. Are you going to keep that in? I think we have to. When I run for president soon, I want to be known as anti-China. I do think it's ridiculous that we educate the premier of China's daughter at Harvard University. I don't think that's our job as a country. We do. Interesting. Well, I was more worried for your for your health, Robert. If there are Chinese, you know, if the Chinese government's listening to this podcast, world indoors are. You know where world indoors are next year, Robert? Nanjing. You might not make it back. Did a single athlete speak out? Not a single athlete spoke out of the Olympics, and not a single journalist asked a question. I mean, the Chinese are very effective at putting fear in everyone's minds, right? Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't really. That someone may have spoken out, but I, I don't think it got major play in the U.S. if they did. All right, well, then let's, let's back to the Kelly Hodgson thing, Mo Riverly. I'll state for the record, I don't think that this is good for Miss Mo, that she's not running an indoor season. The last time we saw her, she was dropping out of the mile at Milrose. I think if it's not broke, why fix it? I think she should have done exactly what she did last year. She did a lot of racing, and she was exceptional. She's in college. Pretty much stick on the college schedule. You're still training with the team, etc. I would have gone to World Indoors. I would definitely have gone to USA Indoors. I can only assume that she's hurt. I hope that's not the case. I hope that come, come on, Robert. No, she has a fat contract now. She doesn't have to race all the time. I, I will. I cut Phenom some slack. Like Sydney McLaughlin. Can we remember this time last year? Everyone's like, why isn't Sydney racing? Why is she only doing the hundred hurdles? What's going on? She ends up breaking the world record in the Olympic final and at the Olympic trials final as well, by the way, like I think Mo has enough talent. I'm, I'm not going to crucify her for not running USA indoors when we haven't even seen what happens. Like if we look back on the season later and it's a disaster, maybe, but I'm not going to say, Oh, this is a colossal mistake. She's 19. She's super, super talented. I, I don't, I'd like to see her running USA's. I think it's good for the sport. If she runs USA's in the worlds and has, helps develop this rivalry with Hodgkinson, but I'm not going to say it's a mistake in her development not to run it. Well, 
if she doesn't take it seriously and other pros don't take it seriously, I get it. And their and their total self interest, which is what the sport is all about. Everyone do exact. It's what modern society's become. Do exactly everything. Only what's in your personally best and self interest. Do not worry about the rest of the world. Do not worry about the rest of the sport. Yeah, that's fine. But Bowerman Track Club has entered one athlete. If you're not going to say shame on you, I will. I just think this is ridiculous. We're saying, how can we make the sport more popular? There's a, uh, we're not unless we have other majors. We have one. What makes the world so special is there's so much pressure in the Olympics. There's so much pressure in the world. But, well, you know, and some of these athletes can't handle it. And, but that makes it much watch TV. But I would like to have, okay, how are we going to grow the sport? Have more majors. We could have certainly world indoors be one of those majors. If the athletes would show up, that's why I'm so pumped to go there. I'm going to try to promote it as a major and basically guilt the people who don't show up or have the bother to go. So how in the hell can Bowerman only enter one athlete? I I just don't understand that. Robert, I do agree with you. I think that's shameful. And here's why. I can understand if you have gripes with the calendar, you're saying, okay, the World Indoor Championships... They're in late March, March 18th to 20th. The World Championships outdoors in Eugene are only four months later, the 15th to 24th of July. If you're saying, well, they're too close together, I really want to focus on outdoors. And remember, it's not just outdoors. If you're a 10K runner, you've got to run the U.S. Championships in late May. You might want to run USA's in late June. And then you got to run the trials. Like, I can get it if you have issues with the calendar. What I don't like is it's not like these athletes aren't racing. Next week... Woody Kincaid, Lopez LeMond, Grant Fisher, Evan Jager, Sean McGordy are all entered in the 10, the sound running 10,000 meter race on the track in California. Same with Courtney Frerichs, Elise Cranny in a 10,000. I can I get it if you're Lopez LeMond where well, you need the standard or Shadrach Kipchirche likewise from the American Distance Project. He needs the 10,000 standard this year. But Woody Kincaid, Grant Fisher, Elise Cranny, they already have the standard in the 10,000 for the world championships. And Evan Jager and Sean McGordy, please don't tell me that you guys are going to be running the 10,000 at USA's this year. Cause I know there's no way that those two or Courtney Frerich is going to do that. You have a national championships this weekend. You can use a five K time to qualify. They all have those five K times. You should be running the national championship. You shouldn't be going out to run some meaningless 10,000 in California. Well, they came up with a good solution to this problem off air. It's very simple. World athletics needs, first of all, get rid of the standards. The U.S. is sending three. Stop making people get these dumb standards. How many times do we have to say that? Option number one, get rid of the standards for the Americans. If a country already has five people at the standard, they can send whatever three they want. That makes the sport a lot better. Option two, no outdoor mark should count for anything until the indoor season is over. And that's at the end of March. So anything you do now, that's great. If you want to practice and get in shape, you can do that but your damn marks aren't counting. So we, we should put less emphasis on the need for them to get the standard. That would help. But B, no, 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 no. You're not going to go do your damn practice and slowly you know, whittle the sport away to total oblivion while we've got a major coming up. Robert, I'm telling you, that second thing isn't going to solve anything because you know what's going to happen? If they, you put that as a rule, Boston University is going to start hosting 10,000-meter races, and that's where everyone's going to go to get that 10K qualifiers. <laughs> No, no, you can't qualify outdoors for an outdoor event indoors. No, no oh, mark indoors. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. John, you could also start saying qualifying marks only count if they're held at certain type of meets. I mean, that that might be need to be where we go. I mean, sound running puts on some good events, but 
at some point, maybe we need a little more heavy hand from World Athletics so people aren't going to glorified time trials, glorified practices, and it's not about competition. The world rankings are supposed to sort of try to address this, but obviously they're they're not perfect, and they need to at least reward national championships, make them a big deal, obviously make the world's a big deal, but right now we have glorified practice Top groups don't even care about national championships. It's interesting how these groups look at it differently. We had a great Electron.com Pro Coaches Tour talk last night, Joe Bassard. If you guys want this, listen to the podcast. There's one way to get these as a podcast. you got to be a Supporters Club member. There is a video up of it for everyone else. People want to know how, how to get it as a podcast. The audio is better as a podcast. It's everything. Join today. Electron.com slash subscribe. Robert, Joe, like, man... You're 50% older than him. He's 32 years of age. He's coached a world champion, runner-up Chicago Marathon, runner-up the Diamond League final. That's at 800 meters. I mean, he's done it all. Marathon to 800 to world champion. He's only 32. I mean, his group's done much more than I thought. He's, he's sort of viewed as Emma Coburn's husband slash coach. But he's really built this thing. It was very impressive. Now, granted, they're only sending two people to World Indoors. They, they only have like 11 on their team. and Not all of them are American, but each group does it a little bit differently. Jerry's sending one, I guess. Hopefully, Gabriela DeBuis-Stafford, she said she's going to run World Indoors. So hopefully she runs for Canada. That might be two Bowerman people. And our other talk, which I highly recommend, was with Pete Julian. That dropped, I think, after last week's podcast as well. So that's out there, too, for Sports Club members and the video. And we was like, Pete, well, you're not sending your people to World Indoors, are you? And he's like, yes, it's important. We need to grow the sport, essentially. Pete thinks it's important. Alberto was the same way. You go to the best competitions. So Donovan Brazier, he's actually entered the 800, too, John. But the plan is for Donovan at least to just run the 400 at USA's and hopefully get on the 4x4 team for World Indoors. Now, he may not be in the 800. He's had some injury stuff. I can give a guy a pass like that. The rest of, from what I could tell, the rest of Union Athletic, Nike Union Athletics Club will be at the USA's, at the Worlds, which is a good thing. Look, I love Jerry. I think he's an amazing coach. I think a lot of the blame goes to World Athletics. The, the competitions are too late in the season. They should move it up. Well, well, and then I also think you'll have a revisionist history. Did Galen Rupp, first of all, he never went to World Cross as a pro, um, which seems like a, a no-brainer for him. Did he do World Indoors? He ran it a couple times. Okay. Yeah, look, it's not. I'm not just going to say, oh, it's all Bowman's fault, they're ruining the sport. I, I'd like to see them running at USA's, and I think there really isn't a great argument for why people like Woody Kincaid and Grant Fisher aren't running USA's. If you have the standard, like, okay, you can say, well, they're getting the 10K standard for 2023. They're going to run at least two more 10Ks before 2023 anyway, USA's and the world. So I don't think that's a great argument. I just think that, but it's about incentives and it's about the structure of the sport. And unless you have a structure, like the world, world athletics is not the NFL. If you have the NFL and there's one thing controlling everything in the sport and say you're competing here here are the games you have to be in this city on this day competing 
then this sort of thing is going to continue. And that's never, I'm not saying that should necessarily happen, but yeah, it's just kind of, that's the structure of the sport, I'm afraid. But I think Robert's solutions, I think those are worth at least exploring because I think those can lead to creating greater emphasis on events like the world indoors. And that is how you get more excitement in the sport is by creating more events outside the Olympics and world championships outdoors for people to get excited about. Now, do we want to preview any of these events at USA indoors or should we wait for, I think we're going to do the Thursday 15 tomorrow because I'm going to be traveling to Spokane on Friday. That will probably be our deep dive, but is there anything that really, there's one other thing that kind of stood out to me. I wanted to mention Cole Hawker's running the double. He's entered in the 1,503,000. The The 3,000 is first. So I found that interesting. But what I also found interesting was his training partner, Cooper Tier, is only running the 1,500. And I I found that very interesting because he was the top American at the Milrose Games. He's clearly in good mile shape, too. He just beat Cole Hawker in a mile. But my sense based on Cole Kupatia's skill says he'd be better served in a 3000 where he's the reigning NCAA 5k champion than, than a 1500. Maybe this just means he's going to take the him and Cole are going to try to do what they did in Chicago and just blast this 1500 from the front and drop everyone. What do you guys make of the decision to run only the 1500 for tier and not the 3k? Well, I don't think it really matters. Are either one of these guys going to go to worlds, but anyways, <laughs> I think it's a good move. I think he needs to find out. I mean, he keeps beating Hawker in in fifteen hundred. So maybe he's one of these guys like Centowitz. We thought he was going to be a five k guy. I know he's the NCAA champion in that event, but maybe his best event right now is the fifteen hundred, and he wants to see how he does in that event. Fresh, can he handle the tactics? Can the change of gears? That's what I'm worried about. Can he quickly accelerate, kick it down, and win? Because let's be honest, he's beaten the guy that was sixth in the Olympics repeatedly at 1500 mile so that's pretty good if you put him where's his best shot to medal in the world like i just think he's a ways away from meddling in the 5000 i mean you've got to be in the mohamed sort of sub 1250 type territory to really be thinking about that that's probably not realistic for this year so does he somehow think like could i get in the 1500 and have a chance well, the one thing about the 1500 now, it's becoming more and more of a pure time trial, right? The Olympic final was one in 328. So yeah, if you're saying, wait a minute, I trained with the guy who was sixth in the Olympics last year, who ran 331 in the final. I'm 4-0 against him in mile slash 1500 races. And most of those have been kind of flat time trial type races. Granted, none were as fast as 331. But if that's your thinking, like, okay, it's just a pure fitness test. I've beaten Cole Hawker in a few fitness tests so far. Maybe I am better suited right now to medal in the 1500. So I think that's a very interesting line of thought, Robert. And I think you're right. Kubatia did not sound like he was going to be running world indoors regardless. So it's a chance for him to experiment. So that's a very erudite point from you, Robert. I don't think he is a 1500 meter runner. I think he's more of like a Mo Farah type 1500 meter runner. Just doesn't have a change of speed. I guess we could be wrong. I'm the guy who thought Matthew Sintowitz was a 5K runner. But we haven't seen Tier do it with like a big last lap. It's more like grind it out, beat someone in one of those races. So at Worlds, could he sneak in for a bronze or something? Yes. Could he get the American record? Well, he's not going to go to Worlds, but 
Is this a straight final, John? It's not, right? There's prelims. It is a straight final. He's also 22, Weldon. It's not like we've seen Coupetier's full capabilities yet. Like, he hasn't blasted people on the last lap. I mean, he closed pretty well at Milrose, but it's not like he's... You know, I, I don't think he's a finished product. I think he's really, really good, and he has the potential to get even better. Yeah, there's some great races at USA Indoors. We'll break that down tomorrow for the supporting club members and women's 1500. You got Ellie Perrier, Jacinta Norris, Corey McGee, Heather McClain, Danny Jones, men's 800, Ingles, Harris, Hopple, Strike, Swinsky, Wendell. I mean, it's going to be a, hard, a tough team to make. And then you know, I don't, I should check it, take a look because you only get two per country per event. But if you win your, the World Indoor Tour in that event, your country can get an extra one. I was thinking about, like, how in the hell does Ethiopia pick their 3K, 3K team? I mean, they've got, like, four of the best guys. So it's going to be, you know, pretty interesting there. Speaking of World Indoors, there was one other result I thought was interesting. Elaine thompson Hurrah, she comes to Birmingham, and she wins the Birmingham 60. She doesn't race indoors very much. But then she gets in a showdown yesterday so that's tuesday in torin poland with eva swoboda of poland who is the world leader this year ran seven flat in the 60 which is very very good running and swoboda took down thompson hurrah 703 to 704 so i thought that was just i thought it was really interesting that it kind of shows you the 60 is a different event from the 100 where thompson hurrah can really get up to speed i hope that motivates thompson hurrah to go and run world indoors and to beat her and to show that she's the best. Like, look, we know Thompson Hurrah is one of the greatest sprinters of all time, but like in the grand scheme of things, is a 60 meter title going to change her legacy one way or another? No, but I'd like to see it just because I think it would be a great race. Swoboda is really good right now. Thompson Hurrah. Can she get there? Can she get revenge? I'd like to see a rematch at world indoors. There's another sprint story from last week that I want to get to, and it's a little bit sadder, but I've really enjoyed sort of learning about this man. Roddy Haley, the 1985 NCAA champion as a true freshman for Arkansas. And that was the year they first won the Triple Crown. He's a key member of that team. He was ranked third in the world that year as a true freshman. He died last week at age 56. And there's been some tributes to him made on the message board, some articles written about him. It's really been amazing to learn about this guy. You don't think of a sprinter normally as a pin relays legend, but he was. Um, as a freshman, he split 44 in Arkansas won the DMR. As a sophomore, he split 43-5. It was the fastest non-altitude split in the history of the world at the time. And Doug Consiglio, the NCAA 1,000-meter champion, former Canadian record holder at a number of events, Olympian of the 1500s, was on that team. And he's posted a couple posts on the message boards about Roddy and what it was like to run with him and how he was just a total game changer. Like, pretty much they used to ignore the spinners, and then they're like, oh, my God, this guy's so good. It, it was just pretty cool to, to read this stuff and to see Doug's post. So we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. But did you guys see this about how the second post Doug made last night? It's about like how he's like, yeah, Roddy had a great insight. I actually think his insight into one of my distance races was better than John McDonald's. John just assumed I was going to lose. But Roddy said, no, man, you hadn't. If you had just done this tactics different, you would have won. So it, it was amazing. He just he was clearly beloved by his teammates. 
And Doug's like, he always wanted to learn more about distance running. One day, now could this possibly be true? He said, one day, Ronnie went with me on my run. He did four miles at sub six pace. Is that possible? He said six flat pace for the record, Robert. I was a little skeptical of that, but I'm like, well, if you're a 400 runner, could I see you running four miles at six flat pace if, like, you're going all out? I, you know, it depends on the I athlete, can't. but I, I could maybe see if you're a real, like, real talent, like Roddy Haley was. But what I did think this was really good. We're going to have it in the week that was as well, which is going up soon. Robert did a nice recap. And Doug Consiglio, these two posts on the message board, this is the best of let'srun.com. This is why people go to the message boards or this is the highest quality content we have on the message boards is when you've got, you know, former top athletes telling war stories of legends like Roddy Haley. I I just thought it was really good. Thank you, Doug, for posting them. We'll link to it in the show notes. Well, then do you think a 44 second 400 guy could hold six flat pace for four miles? It seems like no way, right? Maybe we should forget how fit people are. But I bet there are a few in the world that can do it. I bet the vast, vast majority of them cannot come close. But maybe there's one or two. I'm looking at the GoFundMe page for his funeral expenses. Um, it says they hit their goal, even though it's less than the goal. But the organizer says they hit it. But even there, there's just a couple cool comments. Frank O'Meara, he was a world indoor champ, I think at 3K. Maybe twice. He's got some comments. And then Heather McDonald, who was the great John McDonald's daughter. She said, I've known him since I was a kid, and I have so many vivid memories of him. He was a light to the Razorbacks, and boy, could he run fast, a.k.a. the Rocket. Rest in peace, Roddy. We love you. Tell Daddy I said hello. What a joy it must be to be in God's eternal peace and dwelling. That's the thing. We, We forget, like, Track and field teams, cross-country teams, people competed in college, high school. I don't think it's the same extent for me. It's like a family when you're on it. And also, like, the coach's family becomes kind of part of your family. You know, the whole entire coach's family. It's one of the best things about our sport. Yeah. And crazy stat, he is still the Arkansas school record holder in the 400 meters, 44.48. He set that in 1986. And that still stands right now in 2022. The other crazy story in there is how he was a two-time, he won NCAAs in the 400 outdoors as a freshman, then he won twice indoors in the 500. And Doug tells the story of they added the 500, so he was going to make his debut at 500 because they knew it was an NCAA event. And he's like, I'm going for two digits. He said that when he started track, his grandmother said, I don't want to see three digits on the clock. I only want to see two digits. So he meant that meant sub 60 for the 400, you know, when he was a kid. Well, he thought, well, I'm going to do this for the 500. So, <laughs> so flat track at Arkansas when he made his debut, didn't quite break 60. But at the NCAA meet that year, it was on a 10 lap to the track. Apparently in Oklahoma City, he ran 59.83, I think it was. Which is crazy because the world indoor record right now is 59.82. But his, or maybe he ran 59.82 and the world record now is 59.83. The time ended up being invalidated because the track was like 25 inches per lap short. And I'm also reading something about the staggers. Weldon, do you remember this? Eight years ago, Weldon started a thread on Let's Run about this race. When the world indoor record was broken, someone finally went sub 60. 
Walden's like, hey, does anyone know about what happened in this controversy in the 86th NCAA indoor meet? And people were talking about it a little bit, and they linked to a track and field news post, which is now deleted. So I don't know how much they estimated. I'm sure they estimated what the time would have been without it, but it's crazy to me that this guy, I mean, I guess his, his school record is still there. <laughs> you know, But here we are 35 years later, and he could be right there with the world record. Yeah, huge talent for sure. And uh, RIP for, you know, thinking of his family and his loved ones. One indoor track result we haven't talked about this week. I just wanted to bring some attention to it. Robert, he'll come on. He'll make these predictions. He'll pat himself on the back. He'll, the back, he'll call himself a genius. When I did my preview of the meet and leave-in last week, he's like, he thought I was a fool for saying that good officer guy had a better chance to break the world record than Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the 15. She was running the mile. He was running the 1500. He got the world record. She fell within the first 100 meters, so her record attempt was derailed. But I don't know if you saw Robert in Torun. She ran 354.77 for 1500, which is number two all time behind only her own world record. Can I claim I was right? I mean, she's clearly in ridiculous shape. That's a that's equivalent to a 413 mile. Her world record is 413. Now, World Athletics conversion tables has it. Her performance is 413.53. The indoor mile world record is 413.31. But can I claim victory that she would have broken the mile world record had she run it in Levin? What is the mile world record again, John? 413.31. And she just ran 354, so that's not even... Is it equivalent to under that? He just said it's 0.22 Do you not over. listen to this podcast, Robert? I was looking at a few articles in my week that was that we haven't mentioned on the podcast. Yes, I, I don't listen to you, John. I only listen to myself. I'm like, wait, are they? Are they? Get, are the, is the audience getting all of the greatness that is in my brain on a daily basis? Okay, John, I'll jump in since he's not listening. No, you can't take credit. You were saying, oh, one world record, she's most likely to do it. She didn't do it. And I still think Jakob Ingebrigtsen was more likely to break the record. The fact that he can run a 3.30 indoors, it's just not that shocking to me. Now, maybe the mile record was a bit soft. She was a very, I would say she was just slightly less likely than him to break the record. But who trips the person attempting the world record in the first 100 meters of a race? Like, that's pretty bad you think about it. Yeah. Well, then, you know what? You're tough, but you're fair. So I accept your ruling. I think Robert was right in this instance. I'll move on. But at least, John, you didn't, like, you know, predict one thing in the regular podcast and a different thing on the Friday 15 and then take credit. I mean, I think Robert's tried to do that before. And Robert's pulled every trick in the book. He'll take credit for predictions he didn't make. He'll say one thing. Like... I feel like he, however he can give himself credit for a prediction, he will do it. Oh, wait. And guys, speaking of supporter club members, we've done it again. Another world record by a supporters club member. I don't think you guys know this. I see the week that was is coming out. Robert is giving this record some props. Camille Heron, message board poster, Jaguar1. I emailed her yesterday and I'm like, wait, she signed up for supporters club. I didn't realize this. We would obviously be praising this record if she wasn't a supporters club member, but our supporters club, we now have two world ultra running female records. I mean, wow, we it doesn't get any better than that, John. We are just pioneers, female sport. 
Defender's a female sport, but Camille Heron, she's now a Masters runner. She broke the at the USA 100. Hopefully I get this right. I'll, I'll step mi- in here, Weldon. It's the 100, 100 Mile Championships. She ran a world best world record of 1241.11. She also broke the record for most hour, most miles covered in 12 hours, 94.5. And she set a US record for the 50 miles for a Masters athlete, 608.24. Remember, that's half of the race distance, but she's so much better than all the other Masters records that she still broke that one. And she also won the race outright. She beat the top male finisher by 29 minutes. So does she get double prize money? Like, can she, if I, I assume there's prize money if it's a US championship. And if she doesn't get both the prize money for winning the men's and women's races, it's a sham because she, she earned both. I agree. I'm not sure what the prize money was. I need to look into that. But I wrote Camille and essentially said, hey, congrats. And I'm like, has a... This might have been lazy on my part. Maybe I should have gone and looked it up. But I'm like, has a woman ever won a USATF championship before? Like, I'm surprised this isn't getting some mainstream press, even though it doesn't mean women are better than men at running. But usually this stuff is eaten up by the mainstream press. And... Camille wrote, well, first to that, she said, it says in Ann Tracen's Hall of Fame bio that she won the 1989 24-hour U.S. championship. So this may have happened before, but back then it wasn't as competitive as it is now. Camille, she broke the men's course record by Zach Bitter. I mean, I don't really follow Ultra, but I've heard of that name before. I mean, he's he has the 12-hour 100-mile world records. She had, he had those at one point, so she broke his course record. She also says Patrick Reagan, who DNF'd, he's a 104 half marathoner. He was 33rd at the 2016 Olympic Marathon Trails and 12th at Comrades Marathon. So she beat some good dudes. So congrats to Camille. Support If you want to win an ultra or break a world record, join the supporters club. Des Linden has the 50K world record. I guess if you want to break the marathon world record, I, I don't know who, who probably should sign up, John. It's only the females, but I maybe um, Helen O'Berry, she runs turning to the roads. Perez Chipchia, we need to ask her, we need to say, hey, you know, if you want to take down that Bridget Cosguy world record, this is the pathway for you. Well, what about getting Spain's 40 year old Ayad? Lambda Decim. He broke the national Spanish record at age marathon record outright at age 40 last week, 206.25. We could have him switch genders and easily break the women's world record. But how, that's incredible. These masters, what they're doing, Camille at 40, her first race is a 40 yards of world record. Lambda Decim runs 206.25 at 40. That's ridiculous. Speaking of women running well, as they get closer to 40, the New York City, United, excuse me, United Airlines, New York City half marathon fields are out. Very good. In the American front, you got Galen Rupp making a rare, not a rare half marathon appearance, but anytime he races, it moves the needle for me. Sarah Hall, Molly Seidel leading the U.S. contingent, Ronix Caprudo who has a PR faster than two minutes 
<laughs> anyone else in the field should mop the field on the inside. But Sarah Hall's in this. She's the new American record holder. So this race is March 20th. On March 6th, which is next weekend, don't forget, people, Tokyo Marathon next weekend. She's running Tokyo March 6th, New York City Half March 20th, and Boston Marathon April 18th. Now, Sarah's known for racing a lot of marathons. Is this a super shoe thing, or just is she showing that this is possible to do? We don't need two marathons a year. It's a new revenue stream for runners. More people should be doing this. What do you guys think? I think it's kind of both. The super shoes make it easier, but this is something that Sarah's been doing for a while. You know, if you remember 2020, she was second in the London Marathon in October, and then she comes back and runs 2.20.32 at the Marathon Project in December. That's a larger gap than what she's doing now, but maybe she's just saying, well, I'm having good results. I recover quickly. I'll sign up for this stuff. If I really don't feel like I can take it, you can always withdraw, but I'm fairly confident she'll be able to run a pretty good half marathon two weeks off to Tokyo in New York. And then can she bounce back and run Boston? That's going to be the challenging thing because she hasn't been as good on those tougher courses. And it's also interesting. She's running the world championship marathon in July. So the first three months of 2022, she's running the three biggest marathons in the world to that point it's pretty it's an interesting challenge i'm interested to see how she does i'm tempted to say it's the shoes but it's interesting with her because if you go back to 2017 i don't as an asics athlete i don't think sarah had a super shoe in 2017 right so back then she ran 227 21 in frankfurt on october 29th he came back five or six later, weeks later and ran 228.10 to win CIM, USA Championships that year. So she was doing this pre-Super Shoes. I think the Super Shoes make it you know, even easier. Everything is not the Super Shoes. One thing that I have in the week that was is, this is a, a crazy stat, is you know, for 12 years, from 2008 to 2020, the University of Texas held the men's DMR NCAA record, I think it was 925. Is that right, John? Yeah. They had Leo Manzano, who obviously won an Olympic silver medal, eventually in the 1500. They had Jacob Hernandez, who would win the NCAA 100 title that year over Andrew Weeding on the team, totally stacked team. That was NCAA record for 12 years. Here we are two years later. It wasn't broken to Oregon, broke it in 2020 with Hawker and Tier. Two years later, that mark doesn't even make it to NCAAs, which is crazy to think about. But, you know... The shoes have a lot to do with that? Yes. They have all of it to do with it? No. I mean, a big part of the NCAA is the fact that the, the crazy fast times, and I didn't even mention this, is, you know, there's all, they gave everybody an extra year of eligibility. So you've got a lot of six-year seniors. The, the, the really good runners are all going to come back if they can't get pro contracts, or most of them are. So, you know, it's interesting because it's probably going to take, like, what, three? Well, there's 356 milers that aren't going to make it to the NCAA meet. Um, this year, whereas normally like 359 would make it, but I need to call up Joe Pienta, the Iona coach, apparently has run the numbers. He's taken out all the super, super, super seniors. And he said that as of before this weekend, someone else texted me, this that 357, 749 and 1332, um, 
were the times that would have gotten into NCAAs if you weren't a you know a six year senior. And that's faster than normal. It's like 359, 751, 1342, but it's not as crazy fast as it is this year because you've got those super seniors on there. Interesting insight. We thanks Joe for sharing that with uh with Robert. Yeah, we got one more weekend for people to get qualifying marks because it's conference meet this weekend. So Robert will be down in New York calling the Ivy League championships. Robert, when's the last time you called Heps? I mean, I know you did the bandit ham radio style broadcast on site for the cross-country Heps in Princeton past, the past fall, but when was the last time you were actually at a track Heps? It was long, but it was pre-COVID. It was 2020. Two years ago, I was up at Cornell right when I started to hear about COVID and then everything was shut down within a week. So that's when it was. And if you want to listen to the show, folks, anyone that subscribes to ESPN Plus will be on ESPN3. My broadcast partner, Alex Vespoli, total professional. He just did the controversial Ivy League swimming meet last week, so... I don't think we're going to have any bomb-sniffing dogs at the track meet this week like he had at the swimming meet last week. Yeah, it's in New York at the Armory. Should be good. It's always a... I mean, just the atmosphere at Indoor Haps, it's one of the greatest meets in the world. I've been to a lot of track meets, but putting all the school spirit and everything in one small arena for a lot of the... I mean, there are some good national-class athletes in the Ivy League, but most of them, like, this is the big highlight is the Haps. So... It's really a great environment. Hope you, hope you have some fun there, Robert. I think we should send you, John, to another conference meet because you've probably never been to another indoor conference meet to see if it compares. It's a classic Ivy League thing to think Army's the best. Well, yeah, we think. Yeah, we, we oh, it was great when I was there. There's no way anything else. I mean, the performances are going to be better out of the con- conference meets. So yeah, maybe I should go to SECs one of these years, and then I'll come back and be like, Haps, you know, doesn't hold a can. I mean, SECs will be the best one of the best indoor meets in the world, just the talent you get in the sprints and jumps and everything. But yeah. All right. One other thing I wanted to get to before we get to the Shane strike interview is Mo Farah has announced he will be running the vitality London 10,000. I don't know why they call it 10,000. It's a road race. If it's a road race, it should be the 10 K anyway, that's in may. So he's not done. He's still running. He didn't make the Olympics last year. He turns 39 next month, but he's still going. And I guess, Robert, if you were if you were Mo Farah, what would you do? Because your options are you can just retire. You got four Olympic gold medals. You got the Chicago Marathon title. Or you can keep going, pick up some checks. I'm sure London, my prediction is he'll run London this fall. He'll get a healthy appearance fee. Maybe he runs it next spring as well and then goes out. Or maybe he just keeps going and shows up and collects appearance fees from major marathons for the next couple of years. But if you were Mo Farah, what would be motivating you? What would you want to like? Why do you think he's back? What do you expect from him? I think two things. One, he doesn't want to go out the way he did last year, injured and you know shell of his former self. And two, money. If you've got a Nike contract, why would you stop running? You need to get paid. I mean, John, you don't you're not married with kids, but I didn't care about. I always say, you know, money's not important when you have it. <laughs> but when you don't have it, it's very important. And that's doubly important when you have a wife and kids. So I just think your mind, he's used to living a pretty, you know, high end lifestyle. So how is he going to make significant cash for the rest of his life? But, you know, I'm, I'm not being totally shallow. I think that he's 
I don't know. I mean, we're seeing all these runners run well. Why can't he still be at least the best runner? Well, this might be disrespectful to Mark Scott or somebody, but in Britain, you know, or could he, you know, if he was injured, could he possibly, I mean, last year we were debating, could he medal? We thought, I think you thought he would medal at least in the 10,000, if not win gold. So, well, he wasn't fully healthy either. I think he was sick before one of those 10K. Remember, he took two attempts at the 10K standard. He didn't get it. He ran 27.50 and 27.47. But I think he was sick for one of them. And then afterwards, he revealed he had a broken, a fractured foot. So I, I think his days on the track are probably behind him. But I wouldn't be shocked if he's healthy and training well again, if he's running, you know, 204 or 205 in the marathon. In London, that's not going to get it done for the win. But I think he, you know, he won Chicago in 2018. Could he win Chicago again? I wouldn't be surprised if he could reach that level. So, yeah, I think he still has some running in him. I just don't know how much. I guess that's maybe what he wants to figure out as well. Yeah, but that reminds me. This is the perfect example of, you know, the problems in the sport. We're really making Mo Farah go chase 10,000 meter standards last year. Like... Put him in the damn Olympics. Would have been great TV to have him in there. Wouldn't it have been, John? It would have, but I wouldn't have been. I mean, I'm trying to think if he maybe or maybe you just get if you're the defending Olympic champion, you get a bye to the Olympics, and you don't have. I don't want him kicking out another British athlete because they had what Sam Atkin and Mark Scott. Do they even have a third guy on the team? So maybe he wouldn't have bumped anyone off. But yeah, if I think if you're the defending Olympic champion, you you're just allowed to show up to the Olympics and say I want to run. Like David Rudisha, if he showed up last year in Tokyo and just says I'm entered, they have to accept him. That's just the rule. That's a great rule. It's like the Masters. Those guys, I enjoy watching the six year olds go out and shoot like you know ninety five in the golf range. At least you know you never know. I guess in golf they could actually get lucky maybe for a round or two. But I, I, See, Robert, think about this. How crazy would it be? If they're, they're doing the heats for the 100 meters, okay? And you're seeing all of them. And then suddenly, like, you think all the heats have been done. There's one more heat. Usain Bolt comes out on the track and is just like, I'm back here to defend my title. I've been training in secret for years. I guess there's no way to keep that under wraps in this day and age. But how sick would that be? Like, Bolt just shows up and it's like, I'm ready to go. It would be unreal. And... I've never been in one of these sports fans. Some of these fans, they don't like it when the legends continue to play and sort of be mediocre. What arrogant fan thinks is their right to tell someone when to hang it up? If they want to keep, you know, would I be opposed to to um, Tom Brady, like, playing till he was 60? Hell no. If he wants to sort of be the backup who's super smart, kind of like the assistant coach, and then if the starting quarterback gets injured, he knows enough like where to throw the damn ball pretty quickly and throw the short routes and the defenses work like that. If he wants to do that, that's on him. I never understood that they're tarnishing their legacy. Screw you. Like, you know, to me, you shouldn't be punished for running for doing, you know, extra years. If you have the 15 greatest years in the history of a sport, and then, you know, you stick on for an extra seven and you're like backup level or replacement level, I don't think that takes away from you being the GOAT. People just like I think the society is obsessed with youth. People don't want to admit that it's a clicking time bomb. We're all getting old and we're going to die. And I think it reminds people of that. So if, if Mo wants to keep running all the more power to him, 
Well, it's the interesting thing about running is you. some people say, okay, I'm officially retiring from competitive running, but other people, I don't think Dina Casta ever retired. Like, or Joe Benoit Samuelson, they just keep showing up and you can keep doing it to however, whatever degree you want to. I think that's a beautiful thing about running. If you're quote unquote retired, you can still enter the London Marathon, you know, probably get in the, Moke Farrah could probably get into the kind of elite field in some of these races well into his 40s. So, yeah, like, I, I'm not begrudging anyone, you know, oh, you should, you have to hang it up. It's past it. Like running is a lifelong activity. If you want to keep racing, more power to you. I agree. All right, folks. I think that's it for us. Shane Strike, the American 1000 meter record holder. Up next, interview with Weldon. And don't forget, join the supporters club now. Let's run.com slash subscribe because tomorrow we're going to get you ready for USA indoors. Until then. See you later. We're going to try something new. I'm calling this the Where Your Dreams Become Reality segment, where a breakout athlete joins the podcast and we talk about how they had the success they did. I'm proud to welcome Shane Strike, who last weekend at the American Track League meet in Louisville ran 216.16 to break Bryce Hopple's American record in 1,000 meters. Shane runs for Adidas and the Atlanta Track Club. And if you're not too familiar with Shane's name, we don't blame you. He was a star at the high school ranks. He ran the seventh fastest time in high school for his year. He's a 149, 800 meter runner. Then he went to the University of Minnesota. Sure, he made nationals on the DMR a few times, but we'll just go through his 800 meter times. 149, 2016, 148, 2017, 151, 2018. 149, 2019. Shane was streaming big. Had to come back for that fifth year. What happened? COVID. So Shane took a sixth year at the University of Lipscomb. The dream started becoming reality at the Virginia Challenge Grand Prix, where he dropped a 146.78. He then followed that up with a 146 to almost make the final at the Olympic trials. Shane then joined the Atlanta Track Club. His 2022 campaign has been absolutely amazing. Indoors, he started off by winning the B-Mile at the Milrose Games, running 357.98. Then at the Dr. Sander invite, he took it to a whole nother level, running 146.07, and that led him up to the American Track League meet where he broke the American record. Shane, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on amazing success this year. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for having me, Weldon. Yeah, let's just start off with the American record. Obviously, you thought you could do it, but your pedigree, a lot of people aren't thinking, oh, you're the guy who's going to go out and break the record. Talk us into leading into that race and your confidence and what you were thinking. Sometimes it's nice to fly under the radar, um, and obviously, in this case, I did and have been, uh, especially over the last year and a half, but having such successful races at the Milrose B mile and then coming back a week later and winning the 800 at Dr. Sanders, uh, running my second fastest time ever in the 800, um, in all conditions. Um, you know, it's having that confidence that the strength was definitely there and, um, the speed was there starting to get there as well. Uh, and so having those two races and obviously, you know, behind the scenes with training going really well, staying healthy, being consistent across workouts and across all aspects of training. That just fuels into the confidence. Um, sometimes it's easy just to think about 
the races, um, building confidence and building momentum, but a lot of it is also behind the scenes. So I knew I had the, you know, had that confidence in myself. Um, and sometimes you have to, you just have to take a shot, um, see what your body can do and how far you can kind of push the mental aspect as well. And then obviously having uh, great coaches and Amy and Andrew Begley believing in me and, you know, fighting to, to keep that opportunity alive, um, to have a chance at the American record of the one K. Um, and then obviously teammates pushing, um, pushing me every step of the way. Uh, it helps having Abe in that race. Um, and at the end of the day, uh, we both were gunning for that American record and whether, uh, even if he got it, I would have been just as happy, um, just, you know, being able to be part of such a great club and organization. And, but obviously it, it fell into my hands and, um, you know, had that opportunity to, um, you know, to build on that. So it was, it was, it was a fun opportunity, went in with the confidence, went in, um, just believing in myself, having, you know, my entire support support system, believing that, uh, I could at least take a crack at it. And at the end of the day, it, it kind of comes down to do things line up properly, obviously having uh, a great pacer and Eric Swinski setting the pace, getting us through 600 and then that last 400 being able to uh, keep the pedal to the metal, keep pushing and finding a way to finish. Um, and obviously snuck in right under uh, Bryce Hopple's uh, previous American record to, um, to add it to my name instead. But, uh, you know, I'm just happy for the opportunity and it's great momentum rolling into USA indoors. It was tremendous. Before we talk about USA's, the record race itself, it was on ESPN2. The broadcast was actually pretty funny because they're talking about how it's going to be an Irish record attempt. And the Irish record was broken. And then I think they said after the fact, originally it was going to be an American record attempt, but for some other athlete. I still don't know who it was. Who was, who was supposed to be in the race and pulled out? Um, I'm not going to comment on who's supposed to be there. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, I think the situation just shows a lot more about uh, my coach's willingness and willingness to stick their necks out for us athletes when they have confidence in us and confidence in our abilities but also want us to help, uh, want to help us, uh, realize our dreams and aspirations. Uh, so just the fact that they were able to make, you know, kind of put enough pressure on to keep the one K and provides for that opportunity because without them, there wouldn't have been a one K and without that, then obviously they wouldn't have had the opportunity to get the American record. You clearly have a lot of confidence in you. So you, you were saying before we started this, that Andrew and, and Amy, you Begley, um, who are the co-coaches at the Atlanta track club. And that Andrew does more of the workouts and Amy more of the sort of ancillary stuff. But what, kind of, what were they telling you and your training partner, Abe Alvarado, who's a 146 guy? They were telling us just to just to get after it. Um, obviously, 1K is an off distance. It doesn't really have any significant impact on the season. Um, it's just another opportunity to go out there and compete. So they really just want us to focus on um, you know, just, just going out there, pushing ourselves. Obviously, we knew what the pacer was going to be going at, and that was to pace us to for that American record. And it was just, you know, the goal was to stick on him, keep the ball rolling, keep pushing it when he stepped off, and find a way to finish. Um, so they had obviously had a lot of confidence in myself and Abe, and it was really just a simple task of going out there, putting ourselves in a good position, because at the end of the day, that's what we were doing. We were going for that American record. And, uh, you know, obviously the rest is history. I always joke the... Well, I know you would have been happy for Abe, but the 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 incentive to, to beat a teammate sometimes is greater than some other competitor. I feel like. Do you ever find that to be the case too? It it sometimes is. Obviously, when you tow the tow the line, um, everybody on the line is your competitor and some of you're competing against, and 
you know, it's such an individual sport, but at the same time, it, it helps knowing um, that it's obviously easier to kind of push that off when you train with somebody day in, day out. But uh, like I said, when, when you tell a line, um, everybody becomes competitive against the other, whether you're wearing the same, the same jersey or not. Um, but I mean, with 100 meters to go of that race, I knew I, I was definitely feeling it, uh, feeling, you know, feeling a lot of pain. I remember looking down and seeing a shadow out of my peripheral vision and I knew it was either Abe or Luke McCann. And I kind of thought to myself that, you know, if it was eight or like at the end of the day, you know, I was going to have to push in, finish strong, but I wasn't going to let anybody around me. And I thought I was like, okay, if it's Abe, like I got to finish strong because I know we're still on that American record pace. And, um, obviously it'd be great no matter whether, you know, for the club and just in general, if either of us got it, but, um, you know, just that competitive aspect, um, or that competitive part of me wanted that to, you know, wanted me to hang on and have it, have it for my own. So I had some extra incentive and obviously that kind of goes back to once you tell the line, everybody becomes your competitor. But, uh, once, once the race is over, uh, we're back to being friends, being training partners and, and looking forward onto the next, the next task. The next task, USA indoors this weekend in Spokane assume the goal is to make world indoors, but talk about your mindset heading into this. Yeah, the goal is definitely to make that world indoor team and, you know, making my first world team and and especially in my young professional career. But I just want to go in, um, just continue to be confident, but also not um, arrogant or over the top. Um, Except in the day uh, it's, you know, I'm competing mid distance in the U S you know, it's very, um, a very strong um, presence, not only just in the middle distance side of things, but also, you know, on the international scale. And so I'll be going up against a lot of guys that have ran at world championships before or have competed at a high level for a long time. And just going in, focusing on competing and not really worrying about time, not really worrying about, you know, the, the ultimate goal of making the world world team. Obviously, that is the goal. But if I go into the race, focusing on competing, being the best version of myself as a person and also as a competitor, then I know I can at least put myself in a position to to achieve that ultimate goal. So just trying to stay competitive, um, you know, be mentally sharp, um, you know, also have fun with it. It's another opportunity to race and you can uh, have fun even though you're putting yourself through uh, a painful and, um, you know, extensive uh, situation experience. So just having fun, staying competitive, enjoying the moment, being present, and um, seeing seeing where the chips fall. Going into USA's with, I don't know, expectations the right word, but like, oh, I can make this team. You've never done that before, but this year you have had such great success. Has it been different for you, like when you're going in these races, or was each one sort of a surprise? But like you go into Norb Sander, you win that race. You beat Eric Swinsky, who's obviously very good. Or is it all just the same? It's just like when you were at Minnesota trying to get better, you were at Lipscomb trying to get better, or has something changed mentally for you this year? Uh, not this year specifically. Um, I know over the last year or two years, really, um, I've just been a lot better about the mental aspect of running. Um, I've always had, you know, um, some times where I was super mentally sharp throughout my running career. Um, you know, at my time in Minnesota, I had those times where I was, you know, mentally sharp, but other times where uh, the mental component wasn't as high of a priority. But, you know, when I got to Lipscomb last year, I think that really kind of 
set, I really kind of settled in um, to who I really was and really fine tuned that aspect. Um, especially, I mean, being the last at that point, it was kind of a do or die mentality of, um, you know, I needed this season to be great um, in terms of if I wanted to continue to pursue my dreams of running, uh, running professionally, especially at the level that I wanted to. Um, but that really, I mean, it really just kind of came into, um, kind of came to fruition of having that idea that I needed to work on the mental side of things and actually putting, putting in work to do so. So it's been something that's over the last year or two, but, um, that's been something that's contributed to the success, especially this year. I mean, I go, I've gone into these last three races and obviously the American track league one was a little different because it was more so time chasing than actually winning. But, you know, heading into Dr. Sanders um, and also even at Milrose, the goal is just to go out there and, and win. And obviously, t- like having a fast time would be good. But at the end of the day, if I go in there, and compete every race, those times will come. And thankfully, they've, they've um, you know, come along with the wins. But if I can compete, um, I know I'll be, you know, enjoying the sport to to the max and also just, you know, pushing myself a little bit further than maybe I would chasing times. Um I mean, it's me against the next guy, not me against the clock. So that's been something that's fueled the success of this season and and also last season. Let's rewind a little bit to last year because as cool this year is, it's sort of like Cinderella showing up at the ball. But if you didn't do what you did last year, you, you wouldn't have had the opportunities. Or maybe we go back two years ago. The year COVID hits, you're a fifth year senior. You're a good collegiate runner. What I think? What would you say your best performance was up at that point? Um, I would say it was probably the Big Ten final in the mile my sophomore year. Uh, I mean, I ran a PR of 403 after running um, a previous PR of 404 the day before in prelims, while also running 257 on the DMR the the day before as well. Um, and so that that was probably the I mean, not a lot of people really kind of see those things of, you know, what I did the day before and especially like having, you know, two good races before the day before a final and being able to run a 403 and finish fourth in the Big Ten, such a uh, stellar conference in terms of middle distance running. Um, that So that was kind of the peak, but that, I mean, that was way back in my true sophomore year um, and then never really was able to get back to that point during my time at Minnesota. That's very good, right? You're, you're, you're a good Big Ten runner, but that doesn't mean you're going to go on to break the American record, that sort of stuff. And then, yeah, did you have injuries the next couple of years or you just couldn't quite figure it out? Talk us through up till 2020. Mm-hmm. It was just a lot of ups and downs um, that kind of come with the sport. Uh, so for me, I had I did have some um, Achilles tendonitis that would uh, issues that would pop up um, that popped up my junior and um, I guess or third and fourth years there um, during the winter. Obviously, uh, sometimes the snow and ice isn't <laughs> as conducive to to running and training. Um, and so those flared up, but also sometimes I felt like the training didn't, didn't fit me as, uh, you know, me personally, as much as I maybe would have liked. And obviously it really hit, I hit it in stride my sophomore year, but, um, you know, had ups and downs with training, um, you know, just obviously having some injuries pop up or some minor injuries pop up that at least, you know, knocked me off my feet for a week or two. Um, and then also there's just times where I felt like I was burned out. Um, getting, you know, being at Minnesota or the same school really for five years and just being stuck in a rut. Um, it's hard to get out of that, especially when um, you've been doing the same thing over and over um, for years on end. And so that was kind of my experience at Minnesota. Obviously, that's, um, you know, part of the path that I took. And 
even though um, maybe I didn't realize my potential um, and get to the point I'm at right now um, sooner. But that also feeds into who I am as a runner today and also is why I've had the success that I've had. It's created, it allowed me to be a little bit more mentally focused um, and obviously fueled into just uh, the desire to get after it. And I like sophomore year, I, that's where my PRs come from. I had a taste of my potential, had ups and downs the next three years. And then, um, you know, it really helped knowing that it was there. And plus I knew there was going to be more on top of that. So just staying hungry, kind of fighting my way through, um, those lows and continue to believe, uh, in myself and double down on, on myself and my capabilities. I think adversity could be good for all runners because you were very good in high school. You go to college, probably not being good at first it was kind of a shock to you, right? Like you're not really used to that. It's an adjustment for, for everyone. But I think when you've struggled and fought, then you can appreciate the successes a lot more and, you know, stay more grounded, like you said. Exactly. And sometimes it just takes, you know, that, that adversity to really find who you are, um, not only just on the track, but off the track. And that's something that I felt, um, my years during my, during Minnesota, um, you know, really helped me with, and even during some of the successes at, at Lipscomb, um, you know, having, you can also find more, you know, learn more about yourself through those, uh, those highs as well. I mean, sometimes it's harder because it becomes a little bit more clouded to actually, um, to actually focus on that. But, um, I think, you know, my entire collegiate career, just the way that it progressed and the highs and lows has really shaped me as an individual and, and runner um, that has allowed me to succeed, um, especially this this year in my first year as a professional runner. Let's talk about the decision to go to Lipscomb. Your final season of eligibility that, that you're allowed to have, essentially you thought at the time, gets wiped out by COVID. Um, you've had some good success, but you've also improved. Oh, I think you thought you were a miler at the time. We've improved like a second from high school in the 800. You're running your best time was a 148 high. Did you think about hanging them up? Did Lipscomb reach out to you? Kind of talk about the process to decide to keep going because I think you kept dreaming, you kept believing. That's what people love. So I want to hear what made you keep doing that. I definitely thought about hanging up the spikes, um, but it was a very, it's a very brief thought. I know coming out of um, the whole. Um, COVID situation, especially, um, I guess, as the spring moved on in, in 2020, uh, once they granted that extra season of eligibility, I had two options that I was considering. One was moving on to the, or trying it to at least join a, a professional team, whether, even if it was a smaller team and just focus on where are you moving up the ranks in that regard, um, or look at a different school for um, a sixth year. And I mean, I wasn't hundred percent sure if I wanted to go back to school for a sixth year. I mean, five years is already enough. Um, but I think I also knew that if the right, if the right opportunity presented itself, um, I would at least consider it. And that opportunity definitely came in, uh, the form of Lipscomb university. Uh, uh, coach Nicholas Polk was the second person to reach out as soon as I hit the portal was, I mean, he reached out 30 minutes after my name hit the portal. Um, and so I, I just had some great, great conversations with him and also, also athletes on the team. And ultimately, I had to narrow it down between uh, Lipscomb and Wake Forest. Um, I had a few other uh, bigger name schools that had reached out, but uh, obviously most 
most schools at that point were just trying to figure out what was going to go on, what they could even um, provide in terms of scholarships, or if they could even, if their conference was allowing six years to even return. Um, so it, it, it helps having a few options, but it came down to Lipscomb and Wake Forest and then Lipscomb University was just, it just fit me perfectly all around, fit me academically, fit me spiritually, and um, of course fit me athletically, especially since athletics was going to be the number one priority um, for that final year just to see what I could do. Because I had, I had unfinished business at the NCAA level. Um, like I said, I knew I had that potential, but had never made a NCAA meet individually. And so that was my goal for the season. And like you said, I um, came in thinking I was a miler, 1500 meter runner with you could, who had some strength in the 800, but um, that was the focus for, for pretty much two thirds of my time, uh, two thirds of the year at Lipscomb and then uh, had a breakout 800 at Virginia challenge and um, decided that was going to be, that was going to be the path. So it was it was a fun journey. Um, obviously, pretty stressful up front in terms of figuring out what I even wanted to do. And then once I figured I wanted to go back to school, then it was basically reverting to my uh, high school senior self of sorting through um, the schools, looking at what what was going to fit me and where it was going to be that right place and provide me with the best opportunity to succeed that final year. Well, let's talk about that breakout race. I think you'd run you know an eight hundred before, maybe a couple of three, a three forty two, a three forty one, fifteen hundred. You were saying the thought process was you were going to wanted to make the NCAs in the mile, and you run this. It's kind of a low key college meet, right? Like from mm-hmm. all I can tell, and you drop this one forty six. What happened that day? And then your did your outlook change immediately? So for me, it was so I'd open up the season. So I had a great training partner last year, um, specifically for the eight hundred uh, in Jonathan Schwind, who was already, I think he had already run 148 high uh, or at least 149 low prior to me getting there. Um, and he also, at the, by the end of the year, joined me um, at NCAAs out in Eugene, uh, which was just, I mean, super cool to be a part of and just have a teammate out there running the same event and um, getting to enjoy that experience. But yeah, we opened up. I mean, we both ran 148 um, in our openers for the outdoor season, which for me was, uh, I mean, it was just under my PR from Minnesota. So started off, uh, started off hot with a, with an opening PR and then moved to a few 1500s and then, um, switched back for that, for that 800 at, um, the Virginia challenge. And that was more so of a change of pace. Um, I mean, we've been doing a few 1500s. So then, you know, want to just continue running the same events, um, and just become kind of, uh, mindless, uh, about it as we move through the rest of the season. So that was going to be kind of the final tune up for, uh, before our conference meet, um, a few weeks after that. So, just went in there. Um, kind of the focus was to run fast, but also still have that competitive edge. And uh, it also helped that district track club was there. Um, it had a few a few of their athletes running. Um, the the Hoey brothers were there racing. Um, and so it's pretty much myself and I think one maybe one other collegian that were were in that race. Um, and then um, pros. So it it even though it was kind of like a lower lower key. Uh, college meet there was still some great competition and just got out competed um stayed patient i know i during that race i wanted to make a move with 300 to go but um i didn't want to um you know kind of burn burn the fuel too quickly and just stayed patient made my move uh kind of got on the leader's shoulders with 150 to go and then swung off the curve uh, which was something that i'd done a lot um after that the rest of the season that was kind of one of my staples was i'm just sitting there and then 
powering home the last hundred. Uh, I know I did that at, in the NCAA prelims um, and had done that a few other times. So yeah, it was, you know, just folks on competing. I remember crossing line and seeing 146 and I was just shocked um, because I, I mean, I knew it came through fast in the first 400, it came through like 52 high uh, or like 52 mid, um, but had just focused on competing that last lap. And so obviously it, it played out um, in my favor and got the win had the third fastest time in the country at that point in the eight. After that meet, it was you know, switching focus from the 1500 to the 800. And and for me, I'm a strength-based runner. So, I mean, we had built a lot of strength anyways. As it was now, it was just kind of before, you know, as the season progressed, got towards the end of the season, we were just going to be focusing on 800-specific workouts instead of instead of 1500. Um, and so, obviously, it changed, changed the scope of the entire season. And, um, you know, it's kind of kept, kept pushing there. And yeah, I still ran 1500s um, or miles. Like I ran, I ran 1500 at our conference meet, I won that, and ran 3:42.0. Um, and you know, at the end of the season during during the summer, I ran 3:58 to to go sub four for the first time at the Wisco Mile. Um, so I mean, I still ran, but yeah, 800 became the focus, and obviously that's rolled into this year where um, 800 is is still the focus. I was about to say at one point, I'm like, wait, you are running the 800 at USA's, right? Not the, I guess you could run the 15, but I'm like, I, th- I think he's an 800 runner, for at least right now. Yeah. You know, going into this season, was that the th- thing? Like, yeah, the 800 is going to be the focus all year? Mm-hmm. Yep. 800 is going to be the, the main focus, obviously, at this level, if you want to, um, I mean, it's, especially as a strength based runner um, or strength based mid distance runner, to have a, to be really good at the 800, you also generally have to have a strong 1500, um, at least, you know, like I said, for being strength-based. And so we wanted to mix in a few 1500 or 1500s or miles throughout the year, um, which is why we ran the mile at Millrose. And then obviously the 1K uh, attacks a little bit more of that strength side of the mid middle distance um, and the middle distance aspect as well. And so it wasn't, we, 800 is the focus. I obviously didn't want to bur- burn myself out running 800 after 800 after 800. Um, but I wanted to set up, set myself up well for, uh, for USA's. And that was, that was going to be the focus was, was the 800. Back to Lipscomb. Like I was looking up Nick Polk. I, I may just don't know the name, but he did some high performance stuff at, for USATF. It's, I mean, there's all these great coaches out there, but did Nick change something with your training or, or did you feel like, your success is more sort of a culmination of everything over the years. Um, it was, I mean, it was definitely part of the, our training was definitely part of it. Uh, I mean, it was a culmination of other things in terms of uh, a really good culture fit there at Lipscomb. Um, and also, uh, like I said, the training aspects, um, it, when I went in, um, I mean, he was actually like trusting uh, Nick Polk as my coach. Um, that was kind of the last hurdle um, that I needed to get over before I, before I even committed to Lipscomb. Um, and I think just seeing his success and his brief coaching, um, tenure, I know he had coach, uh, Luis Vargas, uh, to an all American when, um, when Paul coached at, um, uh, at Elon. And obviously that was, uh, you know, quite a few years ago, but at the same time, just kind of shows that, um, he at least is able to put athletes in a position, uh, where they're, if they're hungry enough, um, and have the desire to be great that they can be. And so for me, I mean, the training, training fit me perfectly. Um, it was very meticulous, uh, workouts where, uh, there was always a purpose behind the workouts. Um, you know, a little more intense, um, than maybe what I had done in the previous few years, but, 
um, it, yeah, it was, it was just something that, that really fit me well. Um, like I said, team culture was great. Um, they, I, I really loved the school too, as soon as I got there. Um, and it was just a culmination of things. I mean, at the end of the day, I was happy in all aspects of my life. Um, and that was, I feel like that really fuels, um, fuels the athletic side of things. Um, I mean, any, any aspects that might be struggling tend to leak over into all the other, um, you know, other areas of your life. So being able to be happy in all aspects was definitely also a key, key part of just having such a great season last year. Running. It's important to what we all do. It's a key part of like who you are right now, but it's not our whole life. And if, Mm -hmm. if the whole life isn't going well, I don't think anybody can run well. I I sure couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Right. Back to the strength-based 800-meter runners, I just realized you're not the fastest 800-meter runner associated with the Atlanta Track Club. Rich Kana, the head of the Atlanta Track Club, it's funny, uh, this will show, most of our young audience probably has no idea who Rich is. He got a bronze medal at the World Championships in, gosh, 1997. He's run 143. Has Rich given you any advice about the 800, or he just lets the coaches do their thing? Um, he lets the coaches do their thing. Um, he's definitely there in a supportive role. Um, I mean, I, uh, so as part of the track club, I, I work in the office, um, and, you know, a few hours a week and so we'll cross paths and I know, um, he reaches out too, but he's, he's definitely more there of a, in a supportive role, but he's also someone that's, you know, somebody like, is it, you know, he, he loves keeping his door open. So if people want to go in and have those conversations, um, uh, he definitely allows that and wants people to do so. But yeah, he, he also doesn't like talking too much about, uh, his one, like his 143, uh, because he likes to keep the, the focus on, on the athlete, the current athletes. But, um, I mean, even before I had joined up Atlanta track club, um, and kind of done any research of him, I, I hadn't heard of him. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm 25, but now, I, now I know, um, and it's, 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 it's exciting to have that, um, just kind of at the, at the back of my mind. Um, cause I mean, it also gives me something to chase. Uh, as an 800, 800 guy to be like, oh, I mean, obviously I have, I have a lot of work to do, but um, maybe maybe one day I'll be able to um, take over the the title of fastest 800, 800 meter runner in, in the office. So uh, this kind of a fun, fun aspect of things. Walking down the halls, you just see this middle-aged man. You're just like, I got to be able to run faster than he did. Yeah. And he's got a 143 to your, his name and you're like, oh, yeah, that, that, that's moving. That, that, I'm, I, I'm winning. <laughs> But it makes him relatable, I think. Exactly. It makes him, allows him just to understand, especially somebody that's in, you know, such a high role within the organization to uh, be able to understand uh, what it takes and, um, you know, be, put himself in our shoes um, as current elite athletes. And I said I'd keep this about 30 minutes. We're, we're there pretty much. But real quickly, the Atlanta Truck Club, it seems like Rich is doing great things with, with the club. You guys put on the Olympic trials. To me, it's like the New York Roadrunner South. But the one thing the New York Rotors doesn't have is this elite professional club. It sounds like you work in the office. Are you guys active in the community? What other things are you doing besides running? What are your obligations to being a part of the club? It's it's so it's actually um, a very unique experience um, and a unique organization. Um, and also, as a, uh, a professional runner, I have the unique, unique opportunity to um, you know volunteer, um, especially during the fall. It's kind of our big uh, big period of volunteering. Um, so Atlanta track club puts on events for the youth in the community, uh, whether they have, uh, these things they call midweek miles where, uh, they 
but you're pretty much just hobo host a a slew of of mile races that um kids um i think honestly under 15 and under or even maybe a little bit older um come and race and they also have uh, events for or basically weekly um i guess camps per se for uh the kids in the community called kilometer kids that we go and volunteer at and it's it's just a way to get the kids out uh, the kids in the community out and into the sport but also just having fun i know when we go to these events sometimes it's not even we're not even going for runs we're you know it's out there playing games where we're just running around um just being a presence in the community and um, just just showing our faces so we do we do a good amount of volunteering um but also obviously Atlanta Track Club, the organization puts on a lot of running events in the Atlanta community, um, you know, whether that be the Publix, um, Publix Half, you know, Thanksgiving Marathon, um, Peachtree, and a bunch of other big named uh, marathons and races um, that really, is, you know, bring running, which is obviously a low entry, uh, you know, low barrier sport, Um just allows a lot of people to get involved and, and put the name on the community. And I think that's the great thing about Atlanta track club elite. Um, and as you know, professional runners, we're not solely focused on, I mean, obviously our main focus is training and, um, being the best runners we can be, but also there's this additional aspect, the secondary aspect where we're helping build uh, a community, um, and trying to help Atlanta become running city USA. So th- there's definitely a lot going on. Um, and we have different, uh, aspects we're involved in as lead athletes within the organization. Uh, but I think that's what makes it special because we're not focused on just running professionally. We're focused on um, that plus just being there for the community and, you know, running, you know, there's more to life than just, than just running, especially competitive running. And so being able to have those opportunities to grow as individuals as well um, is, is obviously a great experience. It's cool. From the outside, you guys are doing a tremendous job. So keep it up. There's just so many great things about the sport. And you seem very balanced to me. And I think that's going to help you competitively. Because when you're so focused on the end result, if something goes wrong, I think it can backfire. Right. And I think that's like one of the big things they stress here at Atlanta Track Club is, I mean, there are points where, you know, athletes might get injured. And if you're solely focused on the sport, when that occurs then it's a lot harder just mentally to bring yourself back or you, I mean, you don't really have anything that can be there as a crutch during that time and keeping us involved, not only just um, in terms of, you know, working in the office, but also in the community that provides a crutch when, when those lows occur, Um, you know, you're not actually falling to rock bottom, you're, you know, halfway up the ladder still and, and able to get back up on the horse. Um, So I think that's just being balanced and not making running the sole focus be at, be all end all um, of your life is extremely important to just have success at, at this level and really at any level. Well, hopefully this weekend we're running is the sole focus. You make the team for world indoors. It, you know, we've had drew Wendell, We've had breakout stars do very well world indoors in the U S. So I think a lot of people will be rooting for you. So good luck with that. Thank you. If I'm going to start this Dreams Become Reality series, what's the one piece of advice you'd give to people who still have the dream, haven't quite achieved it, or been struggling? What's the one piece of advice you'd give them? I would say, uh, I would say build a 
deep support system. I think people tend to build wide support systems that are generally shallow. But if you can build deep support systems with key friends, key uh, family members, key coaches, when you experience those lows, they are the ones that are going to hold you accountable in chasing those dreams and keeping your head on straight and keeping your focus, uh, keeping your eyes on the prize. Um, so they're, they're the ones that help you keep going during those low times. And obviously the high times are there to celebrate uh, right alongside of you um, as you go forward. So if you have those dreams, you still need people there to have your back. So that way, you know, when things, you know, at, you know, life, life sucks sometimes, but you're, you're back on the horse and rolling when you have such a deep, deep support system. Thanks for that advice. And hopefully more dreams to come reality this weekend. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Weldon.